Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is another MCRIT episode of Galley Grills, in which my recess buddy, Sam Galley, sends me a question. This time it was an audio question. You'll actually hear the question he sent me. And instead of having a email back and forth, uh, we just record it. And that way you could benefit from the grilling as well. Now, Sam doesn't let me get away with anything. That's the whole purpose of this show is the things that I have just accepted as fact, Sam actually interrogates and uh, makes me try to come back to first principles and justify it. Sometimes I am successful. Oftentimes I am not. And that exercise is super beneficial. And hopefully you enjoy it as well. If you like this one, go back to the first episode and you will like that one, I think, if you like this one. Um, now, I'm sure this is going to engender comments. Just put them in the show notes for this episode. And uh, both Sam and I will reply. And uh, doesn't mean we will give you a good answer, but it means you will get some answer. So let's run right into Sam's original question. All right, Scott, so here's a scenario. Young person, GSWs to the belly. They're in florid hemorrhagic shock. Uh, you activate mass transfusion, pop in a cordis, they get some TXA. Blood products are flowing in but they don't look any better. Teetering on, on peri-arrest, you know this is gonna be something nasty, like an IVC injury. There's ongoing resuscitation, and you know that the best thing for this patient is to get them upstairs to the OR so that whatever you're doing for them can happen there as the surgeons are opening them up and intervening and trying to stop the bleed. But let's say it's gonna be 10 or 15 minutes. Okay, so they're in your bay, and the, this is the scenario, and their airway's fine, and they're very tachypnic. You know, somebody's thrown on a non-breather and they're standing fine. Great. Here's a question I have now. First of all, I think back in the day, these patients would have gotten intubated as soon as they hit the door. They would have coded and died, and that'd be that. All right, now there's insight into that, and we know all the reasons that that's bad and not to do that. Um, uh, because the meds, because of killing, catecholaminergic drive, preload, negative pressure, positive pressure breathing, all the stuff. All right, so great. Now... But here's a question I have. You're looking at this patient, you're watching them breathe, and they are obviously hella tachypnic. I imagine it like this. Like imagine exsanguinating somebody and then saying, hey, now I need you to run a marathon or, you know, I need you to run sprints. And it just, it's hard, even if you're young. And you imagine if I was looking at gas for this patient, you know, they're going to be in critical metabolic acidosis, but What's their respiratory competition? What's their CO2? Is their CO2 normal, uh, which would be really bad? Or God forbid, is it high, which would be terrible? And, you know, all of a sudden, it doesn't seem like quite such a bad idea to intubate them. Is intubation necessarily bad? They're going to get intubated anyway. Uh, again, I would rather have this happen up there at the same time that the surgeons are doing their thing. But, you know, it makes you wonder, like, probably the best thing for this in this scenario, it's going to be 10 or 15 minutes is put them on BiPAP. This is what I do with any crit critical metabolic acidosis that requires profound respiratory compensation, even in young people. Uh, so I don't know, man, you ever had this scenario where you thought, you know, maybe it is a good idea to innovate or did you innovate or have you ever put these people on BiPAP? I think it'd be weird in the trauma bay and people would look at you funny, but um, I think it's probably the best thing for them. Let me know your insights. Uh, I appreciate them as always. So Sam, right. you know, that, that's, that's an intriguing question. I think we should talk about the underlying physiology as well as we know it, and then we can answer your question of whether I think personally BiPAP is a good or bad idea. Is that sound Absolutely. good? Absolutely. All right, man. So 
I guess the first question I'd have in your scenario to you to really be able to answer is, is this patient just tachypnic or are they hyperpnic as well? Well, both. Yeah. Both, definitely both and kind of extreme both. Yeah. So in that circumstance, you really have two things at play here. Now you alluded to their carbon dioxide as a compensation for their metabolic acidosis, which they almost certainly do due to elevated lactate. Um, but the more important thing I think to keep these patients alive is the negative interthoracic pressure that's being generated far beyond the norm. And you alluded to that as well. Um, it's really that latter one that I'm more concerned about in these patients, whatever blood pressure that you, they have, that's low enough that you fear their peri-arrest is only being maintained by the degree of venous return. They're currently, um, obtaining by their hyperpnea. Uh, I think when you mess with that, you have an excellent chance of causing a peri-intubation or peri-positive pressure ventilation in the course of a non-invasive you know, setting, uh, cardiac arrest. Um, and you know that's why traditionally the teaching has been for something like a pericardial tamponade, for a patient who is exsanguinating, uh, who is barely holding on, to just put a BVM over their face, let them passively breathe, and then take them to the OR and don't actually intubate until you've achieved a good buffer of resuscitation and they're just about ready to open up the chest or abdomen such that they could get immediate vascular control. That's their traditional teaching. Now, tell me why you don't like that traditional teaching thus far. All right, all right, fair enough. Um, now, I'm not gonna say I don't like that traditional teaching, but I want to uh, pose this to you. So yes, I think out of all the patients that are preload dependent, this is the most preload dependent patient you can uh, concoct, a hemorrhagic shock patient. But I'm thinking about it like this. By the way, for reference, this patient's, uh, you know, labs got sent and they eventually came back. This patient was uh, in the OR uh, long before the labs came back. Bicarb came back in single digits. Um, so I think you have to weigh the hemodynamic impacts of that work of breathing uh, against uh, killing or, you know, taking away from preload. Uh, think about this. How much cardiac output, now the cardiac output in these patients is very precious. And how much cardiac output is going out to the lungs? What percentage? Is it like half, 50%? Is it more? I don't know the answer to that. But the other thing is there's kind of a vicious cycle here of metabolic demand. The metabolic demand required uh, to keep up with that ventilation. It's like this ironic, the thing, which is the lungs that are eliminating the CO2 is creating more CO2, which now the lungs have to work harder to eliminate that CO2. So you have that vicious cycle going on. And if you think about both of those things, even if the patient is keeping up with this uh, CO2 elimination? I don't know. I don't know the answer. How do you know that, that uh, inhibiting venous return is going to outweigh the benefits of taking that away? All right. Well, we, we have a few things that I think point us towards knowing. We don't know. Certainly no one's done this as a really well-controlled randomized trial. I think there is a trial to be done, but no one's done it. But we have a few things. First of all, we have the observational data that anyone who runs an airway database uh, could point out, which is when these patients do get intubated, they have an extremely high rate of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Uh, we've seen that with tamponade. 
we've seen that with patients with severe hemorrhage shock. So uh, that is associative, it's not definitive. Uh, a second piece of information we have is that when you put impedance threshold devices on these patients, and this has been done in animals and humans, I think in a bunch of studies by now, and I'm, I'm really, you know, I don't quite understand why this hasn't translated to the clinical venue yet, but it's pretty clear um, that there's a massive increase in perfusion and in blood pressure if you make them work even harder for their negative inspirations. Well, that's what the impedance threshold device does, is it forces them to generate even more negative interthoracic pressure in order to um, open a valve on a device and actually get the air. So it becomes a more difficult, spontaneous breath. And when you put those on pigs and you put them on humans, in both cases, the vital signs improve fairly dramatically. Um, that would tell us that not only are they is that necessary what they're doing, that there's even more they could do. Now, you're absolutely right when you point out that there's no patient-important outcomes yet. They haven't. It's not that they're negative, it's that they haven't been generated. They don't have big enough uh, numbers to see, okay, will that lead to a decrease in mortality, which is what we'd actually want to see for these devices. But we, we do know that not only are they generating hemodynamic stability by negative inspiration, but they have even the capacity to do more if we make them work harder. So what do you have to say about those two thus far? All right, so in general, I agree with you, but... Um let me say this. As I said, you know, it's it's funny. I think back in the day when there was as much insight into this, as I said, these patients would have gotten intubated as soon as they hit the door. Like they look terrible, airway, breathing, circulation, and they would have coded and died. And everyone would have said that they were just they were just too sick. I think you have to do it right if you are going to intubate. And I'm not even saying that you should. I'm just posing the question. And, you know, I'm saying, you know, maybe maybe BiPAP, maybe help them with respiratory support is a good idea. But if you don't do it right, absolutely. The peri-intubation arrests, I think those are people who are not doing it right. And when I say do it right, I mean, you got to get access, good access, and you, got, you have to resuscitate uh, before you intubate. And um, you got to leave a buffer in anticipation of that um, uh, hemodynamic insult that you're about to do to the patient. And probably we should be giving push dose pressors to these people, even though it's hemorrhagic shock because you're, you're kill killing their catecholaminergic drive and, you know, depending on what medication you used, et cetera. Uh, so I think that's patients, th those patients aren't having it done the right way, but I'm not even saying per se that we should intubate these patients at all. I'm, I'm just posing this question. And, the, you know, I want to take this to another, I want to add another layer to this. We're talking about patients in profound hemorrhagic shock who are compensating. All right. Now, let's say we get that gas and the CO2 is normal. I would say that's a type two relative respiratory failure. You know, CO2 is normal. But this is a relative respiratory failure for this patient, given their physiologic milieu. Uh, and the other thing about that, uh, if it's high, if their CO2 is high, I mean, I, hopefully, I think you, you would agree. Like, they're, they're just straight up, uh, it's not even relative, they're just respiratory failure at that point. But the other point I, I want to make as well is, as those respirations are getting, you know, they're getting less hyperpnic and they're getting, uh, they're not... They're not taking as deep breaths. You also get diminishing returns on that augmentation of venous return. 
Yeah, well, I, I clearly agree with the second part of that. And I, I know in essence what you're saying on the first part. I'm going to disagree on the terminology, though I completely agree on uh, thinking your intent. I wouldn't call that type 2 respiratory failure by any stretch of the imagination. That refers to a ventilatory failure that is because of something intrinsic to the lungs. I, I would just call this inadequate compensation, right? They're not doing the job. And that almost always is secondary to the lungs, Um it's it's usually a result of their obtundation or their you know actually decreased brain perfusion or what have you, um, and you know those patients are really pericode. And I think that's the key thing to understand is most of the bad hemorrhagic shock will traditionally be in a younger population. You absolutely can get an old person with a gunshot wound or you know a ruptured spleen, but you know younger people do stupid things more often. And in those patients, they'll compensate right till they die. They'll remain hyperpnic you know, actually generating hyperventilation uh, until death. If they weren't, for whatever reason, then I agree with you. Like the, the balance shifts now to if they're that obtunded that they're no longer hyperpnic or they're that tired or that acidotic, then intubation is probably beneficial. Um, but I want to go back to what you had said earlier about, you know, should we intubate? And this has been the classic question, even more than the question of BiPAP, which we get to in a second, is do you intubate them now or do you leave them? Uh, to go up the elevator, possibly code in the midst without now the protection of an endotracheal tube, and they got intubated in the OR. And I don't have to answer that, you know, uh, that dichotomy, that that problem anymore, because I just intubate all these patients, but I don't take away their spontaneous breathing. And therefore, I get the best of all worlds. I have a tube in place, but they're still doing exactly what they were, or pretty damn close to it. And uh, the way I get that done is I would just do a ketamine awake intubation on these patients. Uh, this is what I routinely do. Uh, on these patients. And I have an endotracheal tube in place, but I let them spontaneously breathe. And they go on the ventilator, but they don't get any settings. They don't get any peep. They don't get any pressure support. They're just basically doing exactly what they were doing. And you could even argue uh, that if the endotracheal tube is providing some resistance, that's beneficial, right? Like all of a sudden, you've basically put a impedance threshold device of a very minor sort in line. So in every way, that seems to be threading the needle for me. All right, so you know what, what do you want? Whether you call it, you know, t a relative type two respiratory, that's just something I made up. You know, it's a no. I, like I said, uh, I totally uh, hear what you were going for with that. Okay. Otherwise, you know, okay, I'm going to press you on this because you made the assertion that no, these patients they will compensate until the point that they die. How do you know that? I I I don't feel like that's I don't I personally uh, we don't have amazing data on this. And it's, it's not like we can point to some RCT and say, no, look at this trial. I don't know that that's true. Um, you know, you have these, you have these, imagine a DKR, okay. And, and you talk about a healthy DKR and then imagine like a very sick DKR with also CHF or also add in a lung failure or a morbidly obese patient with very little uh, physiologic reserve with, you know, profound deconditioning. You talk about all these things, but even if you, even if we were talking about healthy patients, imagine, uh, you know, a DK air. They're definitely. Uh, I'm sorry. They're usually not. Uh, they usually usually don't have a significant hemodynamic problem. They can, but usually they don't. This is like that same thing in terms of the physiologic milieu, except these patients are exsanguinating and they've lost half their their blood volume. And now we're like, I need you to run these sprints. Keep going. Keep going. I don't think necessarily that they are going to cut it. 
No, I, I, I told you there are definitely patients that don't. But when you look at the CO2 values on an arterial blood gas of these patients, um, they're almost always until the point of severe obtundation and peri-arrest are hypocarbic. Or, 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 I say almost every, like I can't imagine, the, I can't remember the last time I saw one of these patients who was still alive. They didn't have a, a peri, uh, they didn't have a arrest in the midst of their resuscitation who are not hypocarbic because this is what your body was built for. Your body wasn't built for DKA. Your body wasn't built for a lot of the things it has to compensate for. Your body was built for this exact scenario. Everything predisposes to working. All of the stress hormones make you hyperpnic. They make your lung volumes enormous and you hyperventilate. All of the acidosis predisposes to a better functioning of your system until you hit the threshold where it turns to everything falling apart. Um, you're, you're, this is what we're built for. We're built to be a 20-year-old who uh, who got stabbed you know, by a tusk of some animal we were trying to hunt down. We will compensate for that exact scenario really well. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing what the human body can do. I just don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, you know, it would be great to to, to have actual uh, great data on serial gases on these patients because the lab value will, will tell you. But you watch these patients clinically and they're teetering on kind of that tightrope of peri-arrest. And you can watch them. Guess they get less hyperpnic and it's not because they're getting better hemodynamically. They're kind of barely hanging in there and they just look like they are tiring out. So I don't know. Yeah. I, when I when they're tiring out, they got to be intubated. We, we completely agree on well, that. Well, you know, it's relative tiring out. It's not like, oh, they need to be intubated. They're not there. It's, it's all relative, you know, and it's, it's all this whole conversation is all, is all kind of theoretical and everything's relative. Uh, but, you know, and again, I think you add, comorbidities and you don't you take away that young healthy patient and i think obviously much more quickly you're gonna run into that again you know and and i'm not espousing my viewpoint as the way to manage these patients but i think you should just use my viewpoint as the way to manage these patients um if you intubate these (laughs) patients uh and maintain their respiratory drive you now have precise parameters of whether they're still hyperventilating or not uh you'll you'll get a minute ventilation that's precisely calculated by your ventilator and as a result, you'll know exactly what the hell they're doing. And if their minute ventilation starts decreasing, then you know you have to add on some positive pressure ventilation to them. Um, so it's yet another reason to just stick a tube in them early on. And it eliminates all of the fights that are going on on Twitter as we speak of should these patients be intubated in the OR or the ED. No one's, at least in the Twitter discussions I've seen, is indicating ED is less proficient at intubating. They might be thinking it, but they haven't said it in the tweets. They're all indicating that the RSI will kill them in the ED because of the 20 minutes until the chest or abdomen's opened. And so you just intubate them right beforehand. Well, if you intubate them, but maintain respiratory drive, you don't have to worry about that. And then you would know exactly what degree of tiring they had. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's no doubt if you can avoid it, you want this to happen in the OR, you know, ideally, I, I don't an know idea, if that's true. I, I do, again, it, that, that's predicate on the idea that your alternative is RSI in the ED or wait for RSI in the OR. And I, well, I, I'm I think just, that's a false dichotomy. Yeah, well, I'm just saying in general. If ideally, you know, in an ideal world, these patients would go right to the OR. The OR would be where you're doing everything, that and then there would be no Absolutely. place to go. But in your scenario, of right. you have 10 yeah. to 15 minutes. Obviously, the ideal would be the cortis endotracheal tube and blood is already 
doing the pre-resuscitation the anesthesiologist would feel he or she needed to do before it was safe to intubate the patient. If that happened and they could go to the OR and immediately open the abdomen, that would be an even more optimal situation. All right. So you're saying that uh, you would do a ketamine-only uh, intubation and you're going to keep them breathing and then you're going to put them on the vent. Okay. So here's my question for you. What's your trigger? What's your threshold? You're looking at, you're watching that you're looking at this patient and the patient is in front of you. What is your, what is the thing that tells you, okay, I need to, I need to intubate. And I, it seems, sounds like you're, you know, if, if they seem like they're floridly respiratory failing, obviously, but other than that, I mean, are you just doing it for airway protection, just for the security that they're not going to code in the elevator on the way to the OR? Or, or what is exactly your purpose and what's your threshold? Yeah, that trigger? such a good question. And Darren Brody pointed this out as well. And he, you know, Darren Brody is a smart airway guy. He's like, well, I hear what you're saying, but let's really parse this out. Why do you even need to put the endotracheal tube in, right? Like if they code, you'll intubate them at that point. Um, you know, are, are you worried about vomiting? Like what's the reason? And like maybe a tiny bit like airway protection, but uh, not not an enormous amount. You know, though a lot of these blunt traumas, you know, in cars have just eaten an enormous meal and been at the bar eating wings and drinking like 18 beers and they're just sitting their belly ready to explode. So th that does bear some of the uh, reason to protect their airway. You know, they do aspirate. In the peri-arrest, their stomach just yeah, has that. Yeah, and that, and that ketamine-only intubation uh, might not go so well in those patients either, Well, right? you know, <laughs> that's that's absolutely true, but it's still a ticking time bomb. You're not decreasing the esophageal sphincter with ketamine. In fact, you know, you're maintaining those airway reflexes. So um, you, all you have to worry about is your gag reflex. And luckily, these obtunded patients, it's, it's pretty depressed. Uh, the reason, I think, is, again, the time. Because what anesthesia will traditionally do in these cases is they will feel the need to resuscitate before they intubate, which, you know, it's a very good paradigm. Um, and it can be an extended period of time unless you have an anesthesiologist like the trauma anesthesiologist at Shock Trauma would, and they would just keep bagging the patient as the sternotomy was being performed. They just wouldn't intubate before the operation. They'd just give uh, IV anesthetics and they'd bag the patient, or they run in the inhaled anesthetics if you think that's a good idea in a sick trauma patient through a BVM uh, or, you know, their anesthesia circuit mask and uh, wait until the tamponade was relieved before they would actually intubate those patients. Um, so if you have an anesthesiologist that's willing to do that, maybe there's not that much time savings. But if you have more than five minutes before you could go up to the OR, and like you, you really stated this nicely in your question, you know, you, the scenario is you're locked to the ED for a period of time. You know, in most advanced trauma centers, even if everyone's not there, anesthesia is already present at a, at a high level trauma activation. And they could just, even if it's just the resident, take the patient to the OR, um, even if like the attending surgeon is on their way or something like that. Well, then I don't think you should mess around at all in the, in the trauma bay, just get up to the OR in these cases. Uh, but you gave a unique scenario where I now have time to play. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I'm, I'm going to press you yep. uh, a little bit, a little bit more, a little, <laughs> a little bit more again. Uh, what exactly is your trigger? The patient is in front of you. Who, which describe the patient, describe the feel, the scenario, all the things going on that makes you say, I think I need to put a tube in this patient. Yeah. If they're massive transfusion, I want a tube in those patients. So the only thing that's going to stop me from putting the tube in that patient is uh, that they're going imminently to the OR. That that's it. Otherwise, they're getting a tube. 
And, you know, if they're not going imminently to the OR, the other thing is, where are they going? If they're not going imminently to the OR, they're usually going to CAT scan or IR. And I need a tube there. Uh, it, it's just the monitoring is not going to be as good as it would be in the OR, where it's one to two anesthesiologists per patient. Um, so I need a tube. And a lot of these patients, I don't know, you know, OR or CT. You know, it, it's still up in the air. I want a tube. And so basically, if they're sick enough to require you know, more than a small amount of blood product, I want a tube in them. And then the only question for me is, will they tolerate paralysis or not? And if they won't, then they're going to get into wake ketamine intubation. If I'm on the border, then I might give the ketamine, see what happens to their hemodynamics, and then decide at that point, is it a ketamine awake or is it a DSI? whether I give the paralytics or not. But the paralytics are really the, for me, you know, most people's question, intubate or not, for me, it's paralyze or not. And that's really the dividing line. And if you buy that, if you divide, buy that paralysis is a big problem, not just for loss of spontaneous ventilation, uh, not just for compensation of CO2, not just for venous return increase, but also for the potential of a relaxation of pelvic musculature, um, which, you know, is a good way to lose, you know, a bunch of your blood volume into a pelvis that was constricted by the voluntary muscle and now isn't, um, you know, oh, that paralysis decision is the big one. And uh, so that that's where I've shifted my decision point. It's not intubate or not in these sick patients. It's paralyze or not. Yeah, well, that's, I, I must say, I am very surprised to hear that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It, what I'm hearing you say is, if they are sick enough to require MTP, you want to secure that airway? In almost every case. And that's yeah, a real you know, MTP. And that's really, I guess, why people might look askance at what I just said. A lot of people are activating <laughs> MTP for things that we would never activate MTP for. Um, for me, it's not until critical administration thresholds. So you're on your fourth unit of product that is a legitimate MTP. Everything before that point should have been handled with what we call intermediate packs or you know something in between. An MTP is a big deal, and at some hospitals they have no choice. It's it's they get no blood product or they have to get an MTP to get blood products quickly. Don't use that if that's the case in your hospital as an indication for intubation. You know we give plenty of patients you know one, two, even three units of product, and then they're better. You know they were metastable and now they're cool. Those patients don't need intubation. I'm talking real MTP. Yeah, well, that's interesting. You know, the other th interesting thing you said, and I think there's a lot of people out there who would uh, who would be like, "Ooh, I don't know if I'd do that," is to give these people. Um, you know, again, we're talking about people who have la say lost half their blood volume. They are true MTP. They're exsanguinating, and you say, "I'm going to give them some ketamine, see what happens." I mean, I just you see this. The, it's it's funny on Twitter. It's like, oh, I love ketamine. Ketamine's magical. You give ketamine to anybody, anytime, and amazing things are going to happen, and there's going to be rainbows and butterflies. You I, you see it so many times. You give ketamine to a patient like this, and they, they're they all of a sudden drinking a, a frozen drink on the beach and listening to uh, Bob Marley, and you just watch their breaths. They're just, they, they start to lose that um, hyperpnea and uh, not good things happen. Yeah, that's not really as much a thing with ketamine as the other actual sedatives. Remember, you're, you're 
placing these patients into a situation of uh, some of the most vivid imagery they've ever seen. If you fully dissociated them, um, there's still an adrenergic surge. And if you sub dissociate, which is what I actually do on these patients, you're really in that sub dissociative range of dosing. I mean, very low, the sicker they are. I mean, you get away with like 20, 30, 40 milligrams of ketamine and have a patient who is completely intubatable. Um, you, you really are not stealing the adrenal, uh, adrenergic drive to any great extent like you would with a propofol or an atomidate. Um, now, that being said, uh, you know, I've done these uh, observations on patients with DKA uh, who have, you know, insane degrees of Kussmaul ventilation. It does cut it down. It, it doesn't stay as crazy as it was, but it goes nowhere near normal. They're still profoundly hyperpnic um, even after the ketamine. And especially at the doses we're describing, which is the bare minimum dosing, there's no negative inotropic effects. And I, I don't think you're going to see a significant dissolution of their adrenergic surge. Yeah, and I think too, uh, you know, if you, people are going to have opinions. People are going to uh, have a lot of opinions about your, uh, you know, ketamine only, and, and I do it too. And I, I, f I feel like if you if you know what you're doing and you do it right in the right patient, it's great. Uh, I think <laughs> there are going to be a lot of opinions out there about that. But you know, uh, something interesting that I just thought of as we're talking about this is, if you did want to use a paralytic, um, you know, maybe. This would be a scenario where uh, you would choose sucks over rock. Yeah, just yeah, you know, <laughs> just throwing it, it, that out there because there's a, a huge you know sucks rock debate. Yeah, no, no, it, 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 I hear your point, and it's a good point. It's hard because in general, the the patients we want to traditionally intubate are the ones we wouldn't mind the extended paralysis. In fact, it's considered a feature, not a bug, to be able to have a perfectly still patient during the CT scan. Um, that the traditionally intubated patients would get because they're like, if they're so sick, they can't tolerate the rock, then you shouldn't have intubated them in the first place. You should have um, taken them up to the OR and had the intubation done then. That would be the, that group in the traditional world of like, so sick, don't intubate them in the ED bay. Uh, if you're going to keep them spontaneously breathing, then, um, then that doesn't matter. If you're going to paralyze them and you're like, you're worried about the duration, then I wonder why you paralyze them, right? Like that, it's kind of, it's kind of like well, you're, you're forcing, yeah. if you force people into one of the th three boxes, um, then, then it shouldn't matter if you're in the RSI box that the paralysis is lasting a while. Well, solely for a safer intubation. That would be the reason yeah. in this scenario that I'm just... Yeah, you know, it's not safety so much. Because remember, these patients are spontaneously breathing. If you can't intubate them with the ketamine, then they're no worse off than they were, you know, unless you cause them to puke. And that just doesn't happen um, very often. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much safety comes in. Where's the safety? Um, it's ease, right? That, I'm just going to throw this out. Paralysis. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, you're, you're talking from your experiences, and you that's your that's fine. I'm just imagining all these people out there using ketamine only, awake intubations, and I can imagine that things go awry, not oh, uncommonly. 100%. And I think ketamine only yeah. intubations. No, people at should face be value. Doing this. People, it's, <laughs> people definitely should not be doing this. Look, I mean, ketamine-only innovations, I, you know, in general, I, I think at face value are, are a double-edged sword. You know, they have the advantages they have, but then they, they're fraught with potentially going in there and uh, not getting optimal views. And patients do uh, gag, and then, you know, bad things happen. And you, what if the airway gets messy? You know, it's not, it's not perfect. 
No, no. Well, I mean, let's not impugn ketamine on this one. It, awake <laughs> intubation is, falls to all the same disadvantages you just mentioned. Um, you know, it's not the ketamine. It's, it's just intubating patients awake brings all that host of difficulties. Um, but this, had a, it's, this has an advisory warning on it, like a bunch of Josh's and my <laughs> stuff does. Because, right. you know, do as you're told, you know, to do in traditional EM. Don't do what I do because you uh, will have to be a much better intubator to be able to do awake intubations with a laryngoscope than you will to do RSI. You know, that, that's just the, the, the bar to use these advanced techniques is it's a much harder intubation. You basically are fighting against an active jaw musculature. You know, you're not going to have the same exposure. Now you could get around this technologically and uh, through device, right? So we, we have uh, video laryngoscopy and we have a bougie that is that's tip is steerable. Okay, so that means you know you have to have a far, far less of a view to still be able to intubate, and you have to fight the patient less. And I mean, essentially, if you use a hyperangulated blade, you don't even have to lift. You know, you barely have to put any pressure on this patient's airway structure at all. And the steerable tip bougie will allow you to get in there. So you know, there there are ways to overcome, but it still requires a, a hard, much higher level of skill to intubate a patient awake than it will with RSI. But the advantage that it brings in a patient like this are you could safely intubate them without causing them to go into peri-intubation arrest. Yeah, you said it, I was, I was gonna say, you know, and we have hyperangulated VL. So uh, I guess I should ask you, how are you ketamine only intubating these patients? Are you using a standard geometry video with a bougie? Yeah, but we're, for every intubation, we start with a standard geometry and a bougie, um, and then, will fall back to a hyperangulated, and in both of those circumstances will be using a bougie because our bougie is built to be able to use hyperangulated blade geometry. Um, the standard bougies aren't, and you'll be really disappointed uh, in that circumstance. So then you're obliged to use a stylet, which brings a host of other problems because now you're in a two-technique um, intubation paradigm. You know, people's skills are variable for each of those. So if you know, if you learn perfect standard geometry, then hyperangulated intubation becomes identical because all of the differences in hyperangulated aside from you know and we, we could argue how much is important but you insert the hyperangulated blade differently than you insert the standard geometry it's less pushing inwards and more of just a rotatory motion of your wrist but aside from that the the views the way you get the views etc they're they're all essentially the same it's the tube delivery that differs and uh, you can eliminate that with a steerable tip bougie yeah well i think this is a been a great discussion i think uh well, i think we have one more gonna... thing to discuss which is we've discussed you know should you intubate them or not but you contended perhaps that if they are flagging if their co2 is normal or or worse even elevated what is the plus or minus of adding in and let's not even call it bipap though that is the mode let's just say because i assume you're not adding peep that's going to bring nothing good to the table on these patients unless Absolutely. they're profoundly desaturated from uh pulmonary contusions or what have you so should we add in ipap to these patients let's say you let's make your situation easier sam you actually had a blood gas showing a co2 of 42 and a uh, lactate of 12 um would you intubate that patient or would you put them on IPAP or would you just leave them spontaneously breathing as best as they could do? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it all, it all depends on how much time and how quickly am I going to get them to the OR and, uh, you know, 
I think I think that we don't I don't think we know that just putting them on BiPAP uh, if they're going to get up there quickly is not the best thing. But I think, as you say, a very hemodynamic ketamine only inhibition is I think you're at the point in that patient where you can't really argue against doing that. Yeah. Yep. That, that, when I heard your question, that's what I thought. I'm like, yeah, I get what you're saying. And I, I hear the utility of it, but I would just want to intubate that patient at that point before putting them on BiPAP and do it in a way that, uh, maintains their respiratory drive. And, and just then if I'm going to augment, it's going to be with a little bit of pressure support so that the majority of their breath is still negative inspiratory breath. And I'm just helping them out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Anything we didn't cover? I don't think so. I think it's a good discussion, and I think that a lot of people are going to have a lot of opinions about a lot of yeah. things we talked about. We want to hear them. And, uh, and we want to hear them. And I, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's important what we do for these patients because of the, you know, the proverbial golden hour. I mean, this is it. It's not necessarily a, you know, a fixed one hour, but I feel like what we do for and to these patients in this initial critical resuscitative period has huge implications uh, on their outcome. Beautiful, man perfect way to stop this uh, discussion that I truly enjoyed. All right. So Sam, uh, you get to thinking about the next question you will put onto Galley Grills. And until then, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate your insights as always. Talk to you soon.